Help me if you can. I'm feeling down. And I do appreciate you being around. Help me get my feet back on the ground. Won't you please, please, help me. If you've ever been to Manchester City Centre, you've probably walked along Deansgate. On one side of it you have the Beetham Tower, the relatively new monolith. It's a Hilton Hotel. And if you keep going, you'll hit the Deansgate Interchange, which is a large, complicated roundabout. Going even further, you'll travel along the Bridgewater Way. And a little further than that, stands one of the world's most famous sporting institutions. Manchester United Football Club. Every other week, for nine months during the football season, 75,000 fans descend on it. The vast majority of those supporting the home team, the Red Devils. The Bridgewater Way is one of the ways of getting to the stadium. And if you've ever been on it on match day, you will have seen the fans. Many of them driving in tailback traffic, some cycling. And if it's a nice day, some would be walking. Some travel in the tram, all headed to see their heroes. It's quite a sight. Football is more than kicking a ball around. It's about community, a sense of belonging, to hope in something, to have a shot at glory. And you'll see that on the faces of the fans, the young and the old, the foreign and the local, the family and the friends. Many of these fans will have travelled along this road for years, but hardly any of them will be aware of another destination. About a mile away, on the Bridgewater Way, just next to the BMW motorcycle garage. This destination isn't famous but it's somewhere where hundreds of people have come for their own shot at togetherness, their own shot at glory, to rekindle something that has been lost. So in 2002, I sat outside this destination and I turned the car engine off. My wife was sat next to me. Neither of us said a word as the rain hit the windscreen. The air was heavy 
It was heavy with anticipation. It was heavy with uncertainty. It was heavy with meaning. We both simultaneously took a breath. And I turned to look over my left shoulder to see our baby daughter quietly asleep. We briefly held hands and then exited the car with purpose. We unclipped her car seat and made our way to the entrance. There was nothing to distinguish this address from any other on that street, except a small silver plaque on the wall on the right-hand side, and it read, Relate. We took one final look at each other and then pushed open the door. It was time to meet our counsellor. Episode 5 Couples Therapy These are some of the things that was said to us during our marriage. God doesn't like divorce. If it doesn't break you, it's going to make you stronger. To make an omelette, you have to crack a few eggs. Listen, it would be boring if you got on all the time. Tension adds a certain spice to a relationship. And my personal favourite, falling in love is beautiful. It's staying together. That can get ugly. (laughs) That's brilliant. I can definitely relate to that. Falling in love is beautiful. It's staying together. That can get ugly. There was a time very early on where I knew there was something wrong with me, with her and with us. The thing is, at what point do you know, do you know that your marriage is in serious trouble? Is there a sign? Is it a feeling? Are there any rules to follow? I mean, if uh, if I leave the toilet seat up, is it a sign of some deep-seated misogyny? And do I do I need to refer myself to, you know, the nearest third-wave feminist clinic, or sign up for for he is for she, and start tweeting using the Me Too hashtag? By the way, that that would never happen. The whole leaving the seat up because we were practicing Orthodox Muslims, as you know by now, um, and part of the faith is actually sitting down when you go to the loo. 
Now that, that actually that that's true. That's true. You don't stand when you go to the loo. You must sit down. Anyway, um, aside from being physically attracted to each other and being Muslim, there wasn't really anything else binding us together. I mean, we had performed the ritual of marriage, but we didn't have the foggiest of what that actually meant in reality. It was a concept, but we had no experience of it. And both of us didn't really have examples within our immediate families that we could call positive and that we could lean on and learn from. So, you know, the early signs weren't great. And looking back, it's quite obvious. It's quite obvious why we were in trouble from the very beginning. I had come up from London to meet a friend who introduced me to my wife, who the person who became my wife. And that process was very quick. It was rushed. I didn't have work. I'd recently been made unemployed. And my wife-to-be was in the middle of her studies at university. And she had recently become Muslim as well. Uh, we had very little money. And when I moved up, we were living in a single room with a tiny kitchen and a tiny bathroom. And we didn't have any plans. We didn't have any plans. I suppose the only thing that was going on was the fact that she was studying. So I loosely suggested that we'd stay and she would study. And then after that, we would head back down to London because that's what you do. And so from very early on, we were kind of stumped. We didn't know each other. We didn't know what we wanted from each other. We didn't know how to be with each other. And we kept ourselves to ourselves. And that was it. A pretty flatlining existence. And I don't want to make it sound like it was worse than it was. Obviously, we were very young. If you remember, I was 24 and she was 20. And I suppose at that age, you're not really too bothered about fixed plans in maybe the way I would be now. Um, I was always ambitious, but I wasn't really sure what for. I knew I wanted to be successful, but I didn't know what that looked like. But I do recall I was dutiful. I will say that about myself. That I wanted to do the right thing and say the right thing and be the right thing. But again, there is having a good intention and there is knowing how to do those things. One particular <laughs> one particular event is event the right word? Yeah, let's go with that. That took place was if you recall on the previous podcasts I uh I dramatically described my wedding day. Um and then walking in on my bride and kind of stopped the episode at that point. Well, let me fill you in on 
or what actually happened thereafter. It's not something I've actually spoken about a lot or at all, I'm not sure. But anyway, happy to share it. So I walk in. I've now been given permission to to see my wife for the first time without her scarf on, without her uh, robes. And she would be there in her what I assume would be the wedding dress and and all dolled up. Now, think to yourself, if you were in this position, guys, and you were walking in on your on your bride and you were going to meet her, and you were going to be alone together, what would be the things that you should do? And what are the things that you shouldn't? I think the things that you should do are pretty pretty clear. Um, you should be kind, you should be soft, you should be uh, intimate, considerate, upstanding, dutiful, um, and you could go on, but you get the idea. Appreciative. What you shouldn't do is say something stupid, right? Say something which is like completely inappropriate. Yeah, so I chose option B. And option B went like this. So I walk in and she's standing there. And I'm telling you now, she was stunning. Okay, objectively stunning. And my eyes widened. And I was slightly stumped. I didn't really know what to say. And so I said the first thing that came to mind, are you thirsty? And she looked at me and uh, she was like, yeah, sure. So there was, I think, a carton of Ribena. So I... I walked past her and got a carton of Ribena. It was one one of those ones with a bendy straw. And took that out and punctured it and took a sip myself <laughs> and uh and offered it to her. If you can imagine this this scene of two people who've just got married sharing a carton of Ribena. And then I thought, okay, what should I now do? Because we are clearly married now, so there are no boundaries between us. Now, if you just, if you just think about this for a second, I'm having to think this through. None of this is coming naturally. And it's not coming naturally because I've never been with a woman. I've never been emotionally intimate with a woman. So I'm having to work this out through what? Through what I've experienced in life, which isn't a lot, but I've seen a lot of it on TV. I've seen a lot of it in movies. I've seen a lot of it on soap operas. Not that I used to watch a lot of those, but I've seen it. So I walked over slowly and I placed my hands on her shoulders, right? And then I inexplicably chose option B again. Yes, 
the stupid, inappropriate thing to say rather than the right thing to say. Because I didn't know how to say the right thing, so I, I just said something factual, which was, oh God, just even thinking about it. So whilst I was holding her shoulder, like my, you know, gently my hands on either side, I did say, I think I did say, you look really nice. I think that's about as far as I got, you know, you look really nice. Um, the dress really suits you. I'm pretty sure I said that. And then it went, it was silent, right? So one of those awkward silences. And because my hand was on her shoulder or on just her, the upper arm, I then just gave it a bit of a squeeze, right? And then I said a word which under no circumstances you should ever say to any woman ever at any time. You should just not use this word, okay? So please, if you do have a pen and paper handy, then then write it down. So I squeezed her the upper arm and I said, meaty. Yes, you heard that correctly. Meaty. And that was it. <laughs> she looked at me. Too polite to say, you're an idiot. And I think she just laughed it off. All credit to her. Because she was very young at the time. But she did laugh it off. But I really don't know how she felt about that. It's just the most stupid thing to say. But as you can see, pretty much from the first moment, we were in trouble. The early signs were not good. Now, I'm giving you my perspective on this. And it's only fair that I do that. You know, and uh, I don't give you some kind of skewed perspective from her her side. But there was clearly things going on in her life and the way she was, which made, you know, she she brought her own baggage to, to the marriage. She would completely agree with that. And so did I. And I suppose you could think that, yeah, this happens all the time. Baggage is part of the deal. Well, there's baggage and then there's serious issues. And this, you know, as as the weeks went by, these issues started to crop up. Um, you know, once the physical side of thing dies away, you know, you're left with each other, aren't you? You're left with the reality of each other. And then when the stresses and strains of money comes into it, and then family, and then expectations, and all of that stuff, when that stuff builds, then the reality of who you are rises to the surface. And we found that yeah, we were finding out about each other very, very early on. And we weren't the type to scream and shout at each other, but, you know, we were, we were very passive-aggressive, which can be almost as damaging. Uh, and so those first first few months were, were very, 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 very tough. And we were in a bit of a bind. You know, we'd made massive sacrifices to be together. You know, she had, remember, she had changed her faith. And her family was clearly finding that difficult. Um, you know, they overcame that, but clearly they were finding it, and that's understandable. So she needed a lot of support. She didn't need a lot of support. She needed somebody to lead her, you know, lead her in her faith. And that was being entrusted to me. 
you know, I, I wasn't even able to lead my own faith. You know, I wasn't in any position to, to support somebody else emotionally, uh, intellectually. Um, it just it just wasn't the case. And so, to our credit, we recognise this. And I'm not sure who it is that brought up the issue of counselling. But quite quickly we decided we needed to do it. Now, the concept of counselling is odd. When you, when you think about it, in the modern age, it's odd. Because essentially you are agreeing to speak to what is most likely a total stranger about things which are so intimate and personal to the two of you. And then you're going to take that advice and you're going to act on it. And you're going to pay that individual for the privilege. It just seems very, very, very strange. And in this country it is. In the UK, counselling is seen, this is my belief, counselling is seen as the last chance saloon. On the whole, it's something which is to be avoided. And people who are going through counselling won't readily admit it because it signals that you are in real trouble. I think now that that's a real shame. I really do. Because there are other cultures around the world that understand that actually it's a necessity. And from an Islamic perspective, it's actually something which is encouraged. In the Quran it talks about, I believe it's in the Quran, it talks about a husband and a wife going through problems and how they should treat one another whilst they're going through those problems, which is mer mercy and kindness. And that if they can't resolve their problems, then they should bring a third person in to arbitrate between them. Which is essentially counselling, isn't it? The problem that we faced was we really didn't know where to turn for that help. Traditionally, things are kept within families. And the reason for that, I believe, is the Muslim communities that I have experienced here in the UK are largely from Southeast Asia. Uh, that would be India, Pakistan and Bangladesh. And within those communities, there is a certain social conservatism. And what that means is that there is a, there is a fear of sharing your personal life with the outside world. That it somehow empowers your community. It gives them information over you. And that you don't want that. That that somehow makes you vulnerable. And so typically you'll see this, you'll see people just keeping things to themselves. I think it's basically brushing things under the carpet. And it's not even a case of not getting professional counselling, it's almost a case of just sweep it under the carpet, it's fine, you two are fine, don't worry about it, there's nothing to worry about, you're just being dramatic, right? And if you've got a large extended family, which I don't, 
and nor did she you might have people within the family trying to sort this out without anybody else really needing to know um, I've heard one person say well you know if two people get together then you know if if there's a problem between the two of them then the women folk in the family get together and you know take the girl to one side and they look after her and they educate her and they you know you know let her know about the do's and the don'ts and the guys kind of do the same with the chap and you know that's the way it works and you know if people know what they're doing and what they're talking about and it's within the cultural context and it's trusted and it's not being swept under the carpet and it's a healthy open discussion then fantastic that's that's brilliant but on the whole i don't think that is what happens i don't have any evidence to say that's this, you know that's the case but that's what i have experienced and so this idea of then taking our problems to someone else that we've never met to an organization that is set up to deal with these things it just felt odd and typically guys find this odd you know guys find the idea of talking about their feelings and emotions i know it's a little bit, little bit cliched right but on the whole again i think this is true you know what's the need to talk about it you know we can solve these problems out ourselves why should we pay somebody to do this you know it seems like a waste of money well i for whatever reason didn't feel that i felt that yes we should get some advice so those are the external kind of barriers if you like you know or the the barriers that we had psychologically to doing these things but we had overcome those part of the structural issue in the uk is that the counselors the professional counselors that were available back then they weren't from our background which doesn't really make sense because the first thing is you need to trust your counselor you need to trust them to be able to give you the advice that you need to progress in life and to make those changes we were going to relate now relate is a fantastic organization it really is um, they're a registered charity here in the uk they have many many counselors up and down and they have most likely saved many relationships or helped many relationships um, many thousands of relationships but the people that they had available cater for the mainstream and we weren't mainstream we were a niche ideally we needed people who understood us our nuanced backgrounds what made us tick and me especially i needed to know that because otherwise i would probably find the whole process can you know I'd, I'd act with a little bit of arrogance and contempt for the whole thing and i guess i did i mean not not in a very overt way but i do remember sitting down and thinking look you know the problem's mainly her i mean i've got my issues but you know let's talk about her and i've i've always been a talker you might have guessed um you know i can charm i can communicate i love people and so therefore you know i would find myself talking quite a lot during these sessions 
and the counsellor having to stop me and invite my wife to kind of speak. And it's not as if that she was a sh- you know, shrinking violet, but, you know, she didn't articulate the way I did. You know, very smart woman. Um, and, yeah, but, you know, she was quite happy for me to do the talking. So those were the things, really. Uh, getting to the stage where we recognised we needed it, and it was essentially the something that we felt that we could see that we were largely unhappy and that we were getting each other down um, or we were down in each other's presence uh, more accurately. And then having the faith in the person who was offering us the advice. And I'm guessing on the second count of those, I didn't really have it. We went through three stints of counselling throughout our 10 years of marriage one about 18 months into it the other probably four years four five and six and then quite close towards the end when we were trying to give it one last go the one at the beginning and the one at the end was done through relate interestingly enough the one in the middle that was through a mutual friend and I'd have to say that the mutual friend of both my wife and myself was the one which was most effective which isn't surprising because like I said before this was somebody that we both trusted who was qualified to offer advice who was from our background second generation Muslim immigrant he was about 10 years older than us and he had counseled many, many people before. The reason I had not gone to him before is because of that, just keeping things to ourselves, not sharing our problems with others, because that would be embarrassing. That would be weak, which is a very silly and stupid way to think. But that's the way we were thinking back then. The other thing about counseling is people ignore it because they think they can work things out for themselves. That by reading some self-help books, some inspirational quotes, that you can overcome these things yourself. That might be the case for certain issues. But if you're going through real problems, you really need people to help you unpick it. It is a case of seeing the wood for the trees. Somebody else can look at a problem afresh. And to be embarrassed to do that or to believe that it would make you more vulnerable to open up to somebody else is something I think you need to overcome. Because professional advice means people who understand what makes us tick in general. And having somebody you trust who gets you means that they can get to the root of those problems. Now, I'm not saying that counselling is going to keep everybody... The, you know, great counselling keeps people together. That's not really the point of it. The point of it is to help you to better understand yourself and your partner and what you're doing together. 
They are not there to keep you together. They are there to help you to understand each other better. And the best counsellors will help you to do what you decide to do. I'm sure you've seen many cliches of people lying on couches and, you know, a a counsellor or psychotherapist, you know, asking, just asking questions. Like, how do you feel about that? And you're thinking, well, what am I paying for? You just ask me how I feel about that. But actually, that's a very powerful question. How do you feel about that? Talking about feelings, especially for guys, it's not something we really focus on. But actually, how do we feel about that? How do we feel? How do? How did I feel about the fact that uh, my wife wanted more independence than I was willing to offer her? Which sounds like a really stupid statement, and it is a stupid statement. But back then, if you recall, this is the idea that we had: that a Muslim couple needed to behave in a particular way, and in a way which I believe it's got nothing really to do with faith, which is more to do with foreign cultures but maybe we'll we'll cover that in a future episode but how do i feel maybe how do i feel about an independent woman how do i feel about an educated woman you know how do i feel about doing things which i don't consider to be masculine activities you know Childcare. Is that something that I want to get involved with? Why not? How would that make me feel? So yeah. Speaking to counsellors. Definitely a good idea. And so on that day when we... When we uh, first approached Relate just next to the BMW motorcycle garage in Manchester and we pushed open that door we absolutely made the right decision to do that but we made one huge error in our thinking in doing it we went there to fix us as if by fixing us that that would mean that we would be okay as a couple what I now believe is completely different. What I now believe is that having therapy as a couple is fundamental to having a healthy relationship. And what I mean by that is that it's a continuous process. That either that your emotional state is so solid that the two of you just happen to have come across each other at the right time and that you have great examples of what it means to be in a great relationship and how to resolve issues in a relationship, um, which is hardly anyone. You know, everybody's got things that they carry with them. That unless you're like that, then really the rest of us, the 99.9999% of us, we need other people in our relationships. We do. We need relationship mentors. Call them what you will. That we can bounce ideas off. That when they've left the toilet seat up a hundred times or the cap off the toothpaste or 
their cooking's rubbish, right? Or they don't hoover often enough, or they continuously spend too much time at work, right? That we get triggered because of odd things. That's really, you know, that's really where this third voice can provide some objective reasoning. Because it is our emotional state that gets involved in these petty things. And that's why petty things can seem like an existential threat to your relationship sometimes. That one thing quickly leads to another and you both find yourself in this rage, this emotional rage. And you don't really know why you're there and you don't really seem to have any control over it, but you're there. And now things, people are going to get hurt. And even managing that process is something you need to learn. The way I think these days is that you kind of come in, you do come into this world a blank slate. Yes, you have certain predilections and ways of being, character, if you like, personality. But the rest you pretty much work on. And knowing how to be in a relationship. You absolutely don't know. You're not born with those skills. You pick those up. In your early years, it's to do with your mother and your father, absolutely. And then as you grow, you pick up other ideas from magazines and from music and from film and from friends and from society. And then you have your personal examples of that. And then you get married. And then when you're in, in, in a marriage, you need that continuous advice. How do you overcome those issues that keep cropping up? Because there's nothing worse than feeling stuck. And we felt stuck. We didn't know where to go. We went to counselling, but we went to it with the idea of coming out of it really quickly because we just wanted things solved. We just wanted to sort it out. But we came out of it and we tried a few things and we just kind of hobbled along. We weren't horrible to each other. We were just with each other. Just getting on day by day, week by week. And once the focus was off the problem, we then went back to kind of sweeping it away because... There's only so much focus you can have on a problem before it starts to really wear you down. And so you, the human beings compartmentalize. They stick it to one place. Say so they'll deal with that later. So having ongoing therapy, having somebody involved in your relationship, somebody trusted, you know, whether it's a family friend, whether it's a qualified professional, just people who get you, who know you, who you both trust, who you can both confide in, who will not compromise your confidentiality. That's like gold dust. That is absolute gold dust. And if you look over the pond to the United States and you hear about all of these people in therapy in you know, New York or whatever, we automatically think that, you know, what a bunch of weirdos. The reason they're in therapy is because their lives are so messed up. Well, actually, it's just because they have a different idea of therapy. They understand the power of therapy. The fact that Having a therapist is there to help you think better, to feel better, right? In and of yourself. 
if you're a needy individual to understand why you're needy because that neediness is impacting negatively on your relationship if you're anxiously avoiding your partner right why are you doing that let's drill into it let's understand it why are you able why are you uh, why are you so clingy you know or why are you so cold right there's lots of, you know there's a hundred different states that you can be in the question is why are you that way if it's negatively impacting your relationship you need to understand why to understand why you i you basically need to ask somebody who understands yes there's a ton of information available now on youtube and whatever else and it's all very interesting but to self-diagnose you know you still see a doctor don't you you do you still see a doctor now you might go to the doctor and bore them half to death with you know your self-diagnosis from what you've picked up on the internet right but you still go and see the doctor for a professional opinion it's the same with our psychological selves we need people who understand the mind and we need people in this community in the muslim community who are able to do this because there are an increase there is an increase in number but there's not enough there's not enough of this and as a community we need to understand its power and its value one of the reasons i started this podcast is because there is a crisis there is a crisis in the muslim community in the uk where relationships are failing and they're failing badly and because we marry and we have children that means that children are being massively impacted by this and that means wider society is feeling its impact too and we have children who are at risk of having to be dealt with by social services um, being taken into care yeah I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to scaremonger here i'm just trying to open up your eyes to the fact that as a community we need to change this narrative because if we do not change this narrative then generation after generation will get worse and worse it won't stay as it is it will actually get worse and worse what needs to change we need to change our attitudes on an individual and a collective level we need to open ourselves up to this we need more people who are qualifying as therapists and counselors and we need more opportunities to be able to speak freely about the things that really bother us so it's my hope that things can change because they have to change there really is too much pain and suffering and turmoil when it comes to to marriage there are people who are together and they should be together but they're suffering and so they need help they need help to overcome their limitations in their relationship so that they can flourish so many relationships are just surviving when they could be thriving and then there are those relationships which well they they shouldn't people shouldn't be together there's no other way of saying it and for that reason divorce is something that is allowed within islam but there's a way to do it and again there's a lot at stake and so it should be done with mercy and compassion 
A sheikh that I know, a learned man who performs many, many marriages and divorces. He once said to me that when two people decide that they no longer wish to be together and they are going to divorce, then he always encourages them to give each other a present once the deed has been done. And I think that is just such an incredibly beautiful thing that you are thanking the other person for having been a part of your life. You didn't intend for it to break down and that you still respect that person. I know it's easier said than done and maybe some of you listening could never imagine that being the case but it's a beautiful ambition that you can part amicably. Counselling didn't save our marriage but it was never meant to. Counselling helped us to unpick our emotional selves so that we were clear about what we wanted. And we found through that process that we were on different pages and so that it was better that we should be apart. So yes, it's true. Despite counselling, we divorced. But when that happened, I may have lost my wife, but I gained a friend. You've been listening to episode five of Divorced Muslim Dad. Just a couple of quick things to mention. I've really been blown away by your messages. Um, so many of you getting in touch, telling me that you're enjoying this, um, sharing your feelings, and some of you sharing how this is helping you as well. And that's just amazing. That really is amazing. So I feel grateful that you're taking the time out to listen to this. So thank you. Um, the second thing is, I'd like you to get in touch with the dilemmas or the questions that you have on your mind in relation to marriage or potentially being married. Over the next few days, I'm going to be sitting down with a qualified Muslim therapist somebody who has been offering advice to couples for the last 20 years and he's kindly agreed to sit down and, and to go through through those questions so if you would like to get in touch confidentially the email is divorcedmuslimdad at gmail.com you can also find me on twitter and instagram at m-o-i-a-z-a-m uh, feel free to, to direct message me there and if you are listening on iTunes 
please do leave a review uh, that just obviously helps out so other people can see it and they can have the confidence that they're not wasting their time well i hope they they're not wasting their time see you in a few weeks assalamu alaikum